Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, May the 16th, 2022. It is currently 4.13 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And I guess what I'm I'm going to try to do is to bring clarity to a sea of confusion. I'm going to try to bring some clarity to a a, I don't know how to describe it, a lot of confusion. And the reason for the confusion, well, it, it may be my fault. All right. Now, let me just, if, if you're if you're brand new, you don't know what's going on. We're in the middle of a, a Bible study exercise. We've been working on Matthew 24 now for a very long time. This is part 22 in our study of Matthew 24. And whenever you decide to study a chapter, that has led to so much confusion and so much disagreement throughout church history, you have to expect that there's going to be some disagreement and there's going to be some confusion in any study you'd attempt to do on Matthew 24. Now, I guess I could probably have, I guess I could have probably, I guess I could have probably helped with the confusion part of it, if I would have just turned on the microphone and said, we're going to study Matthew 24, this is how you under, just be very dogmatic, this is the way it is, do very little reference to the views that disagree, kind of ignore any any different views, just be very dogmatic about, here's the view, here's what Matthew 24 says, but you know, I don't do things that way. When, when Whenever I come to a text, I want to be fair and honest that there are all kinds of different perspectives, all kinds of different views. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. And just be fair because I, I've stated this so many times and I still think there's people out there who don't understand. I don't care about being on a specific team. Right. Well, so when you're dealing with Matthew 24, you're obviously obviously going to be dealing with a lot of issues related to eschatology. And I don't care which es- which team of eschatology you're on. I don't care. I don't care if you're amillennialist, preterist, dispensationalist, pre-mill, post-mill. I don't care which team you're on. I'm not here to be on your team. I'm not here to try to please your team. What I'm here to do is say, here's Matthew 24. We're going to honestly look at the text. We're not going to bring the system in and lay it on the text. What do I mean by that? Well, people have different systems of eschatology. This is just true. It doesn't matter if it's eschatology or what area of theological study. People have a tendency to to get their their system down, right? Okay, I'm pre-mill, pre-trib, whatever. Whatever the system, I'm all-mill, whatever it is. You get your system, and then you come place it on the text. And then all, guess what? Every time you read the text, guess what you see? <laughs> your system. Because you've laid your system on top of the text. I don't, I don't care about the system. I don't care about the team. What I care about is, no, we're going to lay aside the team, we're going to lay aside the system, and we're going to look at the text. And we're going to look at all of the difficulties the text uh, presents all of the questions that arise from study of the text. We're, we're just going, to, and we're going to be fair and look at it from all the different perspectives, or we can use the terminology, all the different teams. And we're going to say, well, this team says this, this team says this, and we're going to work through it and struggle with it instead of just me grabbing, you know, two commentaries that I agree with, 
writing down notes based off those commentaries and just turn on the microphone and present it in a very dogmatic way, that doesn't really benefit you because we're not actually studying the Bible. We're studying what someone has said in regards to the text. I like us to work through it and struggle and question and and, 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 and that leads to some confusion because people are like, well, wait a minute, what about this and what about that? But if I just came in and was dogmatically like, this is the way it is, then it, there wouldn't be confusion. There would just be disagreement. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong because their system is different from my system. So then all we do is argue about systems. It's like having gang warfare, right? You've got your colors. They've got their colors and everyone just argues and no one actually, and guess what gets lost in the arguing? The text the text. And I hate to say this, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stand strong behind this statement. There's many cases where your, your theology, your system is actually a, a hermeneutical pitfall. It's actually detrimental to your hermeneutic because you, you can't even realize it, that you're so committed to a certain particular system or point of view that that's all you can see in the text. That's all you can see. If you know, Let's go back to eschatology. If you're pre-trib, pre-mill, if you're along that lines, that's all you can see in the text. Anybody who presents anything different, you're like, can't be, can't be, can't be, because it goes against your system. You're allowing your system to blind you from the text. I'm a millennialist. It doesn't matter. Preterist, it doesn't matter. And I can't, I can't stand that because I don't, I don't want to support a team I want us to study the text. And when you study the text, you have to lay down your particular system. You have to, you have, I, I say this all the time. Some people don't like this illustration, but you take your system, whatever it is, whatever your, your system of eschatology is, whatever it is, whenever you get ready to study the text, you have to take your system because our, that system almost becomes like our favorite pet, right? Sometimes I use the illustration, we call it Fluffy, right? Oh, here's Fluffy. I love Fluffy. Fluffy gives me certainty. Fluffy gives me a sense that I know all the answers. Fluffy makes me feel like I'm always right, okay? Yeah, but Fluffy keeps you from actually studying the Bible, because you just you just place the system, your fluffy, on top of the Bible, and that's and you read it into the text, thinking that you're always right. Now, whenever you open the text, you have to take your fluffy, you have to take your system, you have to take your presuppositions, and you have to go out back, and fluffy has to die. Fluffy has to be put down. Now, I'm not calling for the actual killing of an animal. I'm using this as an allegory, as an illustration, but your your fluffy has to be put down. Then you go back and you study the text with none of your presuppositions, with no system, with none of that. You just study the text with the words that are used, historical context, background, all of those types of things. Now, when you're done, guess what? You may say, wow, Fluffy was right the whole time. I knew my system was right. Well, then you can go back out back. You can revive Fluffy and you can bring Fluffy in until the next time you study the text and Fluffy has to be taken out back and put down once again. And if you don't do that, then, then, I mean, you've got your system. You're just always going to think, well, my system is right. Any, anything that deviates from my system is wrong, and I've got it all figured out, and I've got all the answers. But what you have to remind yourself of is for 2,000 years in church history, you know how many systems there have been? 
<laughs> you know how much disagreement there have been? Look at how many denominations there are. Do you know how many different systematic theologies have been written? How many different systems of theology there are? And it's all just people going, my system is right. No, my system is right. No, your system is wrong. No, your system is wrong. And I'm all for the systems. Mate, listen very carefully. I'm not saying throw out the catechisms, throw out the confessions of faith, throw out the systematic theologies. By no means am I saying don't study them and don't learn the system. I'm just saying whenever I study the text, I can't study the text with the system being the filter in which I read the text. And so much, and so much preaching is where the, the, te- the system is just imposed upon the text as if, hey, this is the way it is. Well, no, not, not necessarily, because throughout 2,000 years of church history, not everyone has agreed with that system. So I'm constantly challenging, set aside all of that, study the text. And for Matthew 24, what I've tried to do is set aside all systems and have us look at the text. And at different times, we're picking up a system. Okay, here's what the preterists say. Well, here's what the futurists say. Here's what this side says. And, and, we're, and we're calling each one into question. Now, as soon as you do that, people get nervous. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You're calling. And, and, and they grab onto Fluffy a little tighter. I'm like, no, no, put Fluffy down. Fluffy's going to be okay, all right? Now, right now, Fluffy's got to go. But you may be able to go pick up Fluffy after. But for now, we got to look at the text. And by calling everything into question, challenging everything, Oh, a lot of people immediately get confused and it leads to lots of confusion. So what I want to do this afternoon is I'm going to try to clarify the confusion, not by being dogmatic about a system, but just by, well, trying to answer the issues as much as possible. Now, this is part 22 in our study of Matthew 24. I have received lots of comments, lots of emails, Lots of different perspectives have been thrown at me. And there are a number of them that just kind of keeps coming up. There's like a number of them that just keeps coming up over and over and over and over in different contexts, right? Whether an email, whether a text, whether whether a comment on, on YouTube, just wherever they may come up. And what I'm going to do is try to, I think, how many do I have here? I'm going to try to address, um, let's see, one to three. I'm going to try to address three of these issues. Now, whenever you get ready to address issues, the people who may have presented these questions or this confusion, there's always a danger that they can take it personally. I don't want anyone to take this personally. This is one of those situations where I've kept receiving some comments. We've tried to address some of the issues already. But I haven't just dedicated one program to just try to address the issues. What I decided that, oh, you know what? I think it's time, right? You kind of just reach, you get to that tipping point, right? You get a message, you get a message, you get a message. You know what? It's time. Because if that many people are bringing up very similar issues, then clearly I have not done a good enough job to try to clarify these issues that people keep bring if people keep bringing up the same issues then clearly i have not addressed them in a sufficient manner because you want people to you want you by by the time you get to part 21 and a study you're or part 22 you're hoping that people are are gaining a greater sense of clarity if you get to part 22 
And clearly you haven't, people are not arrived at a greater sense of clarity. Then you have to look at yourself in the mirror going, you've done a bad job of teaching. So I've got to try to bring a sense of clarity. Now, whenever you do that, there's always a danger. The people who posted a comment on YouTube, the person who sent the email, the person who sent the text, they always take it personal. Oh, this is towards me. This is after it. Don't take it personal. You're just presenting what a lot of people have presented. So we're just going to deal with the issues, right? I'm not going to read any specific message from any specific source. We're just going to deal with the issues, all right? And I think we have to do this one first. There's three, all right? The first one, and I'll just give you, I'll give you each one. The first one is 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. I cannot tell you how many times people have brought up 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Now, we have already looked at 2 Thessalonians a couple of times in the previous 21 parts, but I'm still getting people going, 2 Thessalonians, like 2 Thessalonians fixes everything. 2 Thessalonians is the answer to everything. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time working through parts of 2 Thessalonians in this hour to see... Does it work? Is it the 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 ma- magical solution? Now, I, I would just I would just challenge everyone. If Second Thessalonians is the easy fix, well, then why hasn't it fixed all of the disagreements in two thousand years of church history? I mean, that, that's a question everyone should. If Second Thessalonians just magically like boom, it's all fixed. Well, then there wouldn't be two thousand years of disagreements. There wouldn't still be disagreements in twenty twenty two. Right? There wouldn't be. There would, everyone would just go, 2 Thessalonians fixes it. Clearly, it doesn't because there's not even agreement on 2 Thessalonians. So there's no way 2 Thessalonians can fix Matthew 24 when no one can agree on 2 Thessalonians. Right? So I, I think we have to at least consider that. The second thing, the second thing we have to add clarification on because there seems to be some confusion is this. Let's see. Does, do you remember this? Are you ready? See, here we go. Let me do, maybe. All right, hang on. Antiochus Epiphanes. There we go, one more time. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you remember that name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you remember that name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, there's a lot of different ways of saying the name, but Antiochus Epiphanes clearly still is, is, for some reason, it's leading to great confusion. And I don't know why Antiochus Epiphanes, if I can say it the correct way, um, I don't know why this individual has created so much confusion, but Antiochus Epiphanes should not create any confusion in regards to Matthew 24. Antiochus Epiphanes should not, let me state it again, should not create any confusion related to Matthew 24 or 2 Thessalonians, right? And there's a clear reason why Antiochus Epiphanes should not create a problem, but we're going to clarify that, right? So there's there's two. So one, 2 Thessalonians, second, Antiochus Epiphanes, sometimes some, some will say Epiphanes, but Antiochus, some will say Antiochus, but Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, Epiphanes, if I can say it the correct way. I, I was, I, I've heard it said a different ways for so many years that all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I've been saying it incorrectly, but all right. So um, uh, we'll, we'll get back to that name. And then third, 
uh, the third issue we have to get to is Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And we have to get to, let's see, which verse? Matthew 24. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Um, verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. Right? That's the third thing we have to look at is after the tribulation. After the tribulation, because there seems to be a lot of, well, put it this way, suggestions and how we can make this work, how we can we can fix this. And we'll look at least, at, we may look at a couple, right? So, 2 Thessalonians, right? That's the, that's the first thing we're going to consider. Then the second thing is we're going to spend a little time, once again, hanging out with and learning about this individual. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Uh, I'm just going to keep saying it over and over. Antiochus Epiphanes, because I'm gonna, I guarantee I'm going to revert back to the old way. Antiochus Epiphanes. So we're going to uh, spend some time with that individual, and then we're going to go immediately after the tribulation. Does it really mean after the tribulation, or does it mean something other? These are the three things we're going to look at today and try to clarify everything. So are you ready? So first thing we're going to do is we're going to work on 2 Thessalonians, all right? The, the, what a lot of people think is that when you read Matthew 24 and you have things mentioned like when you shall see the abomination of desolation, if you in any way, shape, or form imply that, wait a minute, and the uh, abomination of desolation, that occurred in 70 AD, almost immediately people are like, no. No, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, it gives greater detail about the abomination of desolation. There's the answer. The answer is there. So we're going to consider that and, and see what we can find. So you ready? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and see what we can accomplish on this Monday afternoon. All right, I hope you're ready to dig in. Here we go. All right. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not, so, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right now, what people do is like the abomination of desolation mentioned in Matthew 24, well, that can't be 70 AD because, see, 2 Thessalonians points to this coming event as well, and that's not related to 70 AD. So 70 AD can't be in question here. The abomination of desolation has to be a future event with a newly built temple where the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, is going to walk in and declare himself to be God. That has to be the answer. 
All right. Let's consider a number of things. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to, I'm just going to rely on a couple of sources and I'm just going to, I'm going to uh, throw in my own thoughts here and we're just going to consider what we can come up with. Here we go. Looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote to a church that was experiencing persecution. Paul spoke of their persecution and tribulations, but also their patience, faith, and endurance. He spoke of their suffering and troubles, but he also promised that those who troubled them would be repaid with tribulation and that they would receive rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. If this prophecy is still not fulfilled, as many believe and teach today, then none of those believers live to experience that relief. Also, those who troubled them have not yet been repaid with tribulation, according to this idea. The persecution experienced by the Thessalonians was evidently coming from the Jews. It also appeared to be directed by a religious leader in Jerusalem, where the man of lawlessness would later make his headquarters. Okay, then there's a couple of uh, they have some things quoted here. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in, Ju- in Judah, uh, or in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to anyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they might be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. All right. And there's a couple of verses that they mention there. I believe, let me look at one here. There's a couple of verses that they are putting together here in this commentary. They are, let's see here, they are putting together... For uh, verse 14, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, for you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which is which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, filling up their sins all the way, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, all right? So they're borrowing from that. They also have a reference to Acts 17, but you get the basic idea that they're being persecuted, and it seems like they were being persecuted here by the Jews. All right, it is believed, this is very important, that 2 Thessalonians was written around 51 to 52 AD. Now let's stop right here. When anyone says, Look at 2 Thessalonians. Look at 2 Thessalonians. Clearly, 2 Thessalonians is going to tell us that the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 is in the future because 2 Thessalonians is pointing to some future temple. We'll slow down, time out. First of all, we have to acknowledge 2 Thessalonians was written in 51 to 52 AD. The temple was still standing. 70 AD had not occurred yet. So, it's, so whenever you see them talking about something, you have to ask yourself, are they, is 2 Thessalonians itself pointing to 70 AD? You can't just say, well, okay, you, you're, you're trying to connect Matthew 24 to 70 AD, but clearly 2 Thessalonians isn't connected to 70 AD. Well, it was written 
51, 52 AD, even if you move it all the way to 60 AD, even if you move it all the way up to 65 AD, it's still before 70 AD. It's still before the destruction of the temple. So you have to ask yourself, is it possible the second Thessalonians and many of its prophecies and, and, and predictions is pointing to 70 AD? You can't just ignore that historical fact. You can't ignore when it was written versus what happened in 70 AD. Again, 70 AD is one of the most significant events for anyone who cares about biblical hermeneutics. You, you can't just ignore how serious this was. All right. So here is what they say in regards to this. It's believed that 2 Thessalonians was written around 52 AD. Great judgment came upon the Jews 14 years later during the Jewish-Roman War, AD 66 to 73. When we recall the words of Jesus, it's no surprise that Paul expected his first century readers to personally experience a relief from their afflictions. Jesus had likewise promised to come in his kingdom in judgment with his angels and his father's glory while some of his 12 disciples was still alive. Now, we could go to Matthew 16 and look at this, but then there's some people saying that's referring to the matter of transfiguration. We could get into a whole discussion there. Paul viewed the coming judgment upon apostate Israel as a good development for the spread of the gospel among the nations. The man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness were direct concerns for the believers living in Thessalonica in Paul's day. What was already happening in Jerusalem and what would soon reach a crisis level affected their lives in a significant way. So, let me make it very clear. What they are arguing is that in first that in Thessal that when he writes to those in Thessalonica, he's telling them that they are suffering, but basically that there's going to be there's going to come some relief and there's going to come judgment upon the ones making them suffer. Now, if Paul is saying that to those who are alive at that time, then you would think that the relief and the judgment that he's referring to would happen during their lifetime, not happen to something way off in the future that hasn't even happened in 2022, because that would be of no value to the people he was immediately writing to. Again, okay, I can see the basic argument here, right? But that's all right. We, we, we still have to see what they, what, how they handle this, all right? Then, they look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read it. For yourselves, brethren, now please note, for yourselves, he's speaking to the specific people he's at the church at Thessalonica, know our entrance uh, in, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let's go to 2 Thessalonians, that's 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, Brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as the day of Christ is at hand. He is speaking specifically to them. He doesn't want them to be troubled. He doesn't want them to be bothered based off everything that's happening to them, the persecution and everything happening to those people who were alive at that time. You can't just ignore this is so important in hermeneutics. You can't ignore who the letters were written to. Just like in Matthew 24, you can't just ignore that Jesus was giving something to those disciples. Now, we did some sermon reviews where we were told that, hey, nothing in Matthew 24 were for the people who asked the original question. And you're like, how convenient. <laughs> the people Jesus is talking to 
Not, nothing he said had anything to do with them. You see how that just is not a good way to do hermeneutics, but let's see what they have to say here. Paul wrote to a church that was apparently entering, entertaining concerns that they had missed Christ's coming. For Paul wrote, now brethren, uh, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not be so sh- shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. We must consider the nature of their expectation about these things. For if their expectation of the Lord's coming was that it would bring an end to the world or that it would result in the instant removal of all believers from the planet, it's hard to imagine how they could be led to believe that these things had already occurred. Now, that, that's true, Right? In other words, if in their minds, when he says, hey, you're worried that the day of Christ had come, if they were worried about that, if they were worried that the, that the day of Christ had come, if, in the, if their expectation was that the Lord's coming would bring an end to the world or that it would be a result in the instant removal of all believers from the planet, it's hard to imagine that they could be led to believe that these things had already occurred. If they thought that, wait a minute, the day of the Lord is the end of the world or that all believers are gone, well, then how could they be convinced that it had already happened? Like, that, that doesn't fit. That, 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 there's something wrong there. Like, how could they think, wait, these things already happened? That, that seems to imply that their expectation may be somewhat different than the things people impose on the text. That, that, that's, a, that's a valid argument, right? I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's a valid argument. All right? If the day of the Lord referred to a rapture and they thought it may have already occurred, why would Paul still be around? Right? As David Lohman, a Presbyterian pastor, has written, now if on the other hand, now if on the other hand, the Thessalonians believed that the day of the Lord had to be the coming judgment against apostate Israel, then asking about that event would make sense. And if they had friends or relatives in the Judean area, it would easily explain their concern that the day of the Lord had passed. So in other words, if their expectation was, wait a minute, so has, has apostate Israel been judged? Has apostate Israel been judged? Because they're the ones causing us all kinds of trouble and problems. And we've got people living there. Has it, has it already passed? And, and like, what's going on? Like, if that was their expectation, you can see why there could be some possible confusion. This, past, this Presbyterian pastor points out that the Greek word for the phrase gathered, together, appears three times in the New Testament in Matthew 24, 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of heaven to the other. Um, and in Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, um, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay? Um, verses 3 through 4, let me read it. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition." who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, simply put, this is what they're arguing before we even look at what they say about verse three and four. Is that the second, that in 
if Paul is writing to people who are confused that the day of the Lord had passed, if in their mind that meant the end of the world or all believers just being gone, that doesn't make any sense because they would they would they couldn't be confused by that. They would that would clearly everyone would know that occurred. But if they if in their minds the day of the Lord means a judgment on apostate Israel, they could be like oh, we're still confused here. So. Did that happen? Is it going to happen? What's happening? Because are we still being persecuted? What about family members living in the Judean area? What about them? Like you could see where that could possibly may fit in a little bit better, but let's see where they go here. All right. Paul stated that two events had to occur before the day of the Lord would come. The rebellion, the falling away, the apostasy, and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. All right. Uh, the Greek word here that sometimes is translated rebellion or the falling away is rendered by most modern translations as the rebellion or the revolt. According to Strong's Concordance, it's a word that can either A, refer to a revolt or rebellion, or B, a defection, a departure, or a falling away. Did Paul predict a spiritual falling away? This is a popular idea, but this word can also indicate a social or political rebellion. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus and other sources that in AD 66, a large-scale rebellion rose up in Israel through the efforts of the Zealots, leading to Rome declaring war in Israel. This rebellion began about 14 years after Paul wrote his letter, although the seeds of that rebellion were already taking root by the time of Paul's writing, and there had been smaller outbreaks even earlier. So in verse 3, verse 3, Paul made the argument that Christ, that Christ's coming and judgment against Israel would not take place before the great rebellion led by the zealots had already begun. So they are connecting this, again, to something that happened before 70 AD. All right? The falling away, that's how some translations have it, or the rebellion. Now, they point it to a historical rebellion that happened Again, somewhere, let me get the dates here, and they base it off the writing of, of, of uh, Josephus around 66 AD. So the falling away here, they say, goes with the idea of a rebellion. All right? Maybe. We, we don't have to agree. We can disagree. I'm just wondering what I'm wanting you to show you is, once again, just seeing the second Thessalonians is the answer, I'm, I just want to provide to you Look, I, for every theory you have about 2 Thessalonians, I could probably provide you 10 others, all right? So it's not always that this fixes everything because, again, it's written before 70 AD. So you run into the exact same issue. Remember, this is how you always handle biblical prophecy. Anytime you see a prophecy, you have to ask yourself, has this already been fulfilled in history? That's the first thing. You don't immediately say, oh, this is the future. No, you stop and go, wait a minute. This, because you always got to remember the biblical prophecies were given to specific people in a specific historical context. If that prophecy is given to those people to provide them some kind of comfort or to give them some kind of hope or to give them some kind of security, some kind of assurance, and then you're like, but it didn't have anything to do with them. Well, then that destroys the whole context of the prophecy. Hey, there, a prophecy is mentioned here, but it has nothing to do with the people Paul was writing to. He just took this as the time to write this prophecy to people who were never going to see it. It was never going to comfort them. It was never going to answer any of those questions. 
you, you see that that's, that's problematic. But if you look and go, but wait a minute, it could have been fulfilled right there. That would have been in the lifetime of most of the people who received this letter. Then, then it makes a lot more sense. I know people don't like that because we're, we're, we like the sensational. No, 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 no. It's coming. It's in the future. It's in the future. We just, it's about us. We, we always want to think it's about us. But in some cases, it may not be about us. It may be to the people. I don't know. Second Thessalonians 2. Now we beseech you, brethren. Or look at this. If you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he names some, uh, some, uh, some different pe- uh, individuals unto the church of the Thessalonians. It tells you exactly who he's writing to. And he's addressing issues concerning them. You can't just, it, that can't just be like, nope, they're irrelevant to the story. No, it's, they're not irrelevant to the story. The letter was written directly to them. So how did it fit to them? So possibly the falling away refers to what happened in 66 AD. Now, but what is the significance of the title man of lawlessness? Or as my translation has, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, the the son of perdition is the way my translation reads. I have another translation right here. It handles it this way. Um, it refers to this individual as, let's see here, uh, the man of lawlessness, right? So that it uses the word lawlessness. So son of perdition, man of lawlessness. So what is significant about this title? Some may be tempted to simply see this man as a reckless leader with no regards for local or international laws. However, the law that was held in the highest regard in Paul's world was Mosaic law. The law of Moses. It's very likely that Paul was saying that this man would trample on the law of Moses and freely commit sins under the law. The fact that he would sit in the temple is another clue to the meaning of lawlessness because the temple was central to the practice of Mosaic law. This would also confirm that there was revealed while the law was still being practiced. Okay, this is important. Um, This would also confirm that he was revealed while the law was still being practiced before the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So if this man is lawless and it's referring to disregard of Mosaic law, then it would be a possible argument that, wait, this man is going to be revealed while Mosaic law is still being practiced in this area. It's still the dominant law. Well, that obviously would have been the case because the destruction of the temple in AD 70, in many cases, ends what we would refer to the Jewish era. It's gone. It's destroyed. So that, that would be a good argument there. We can also note the close relationship. I'm going to lose my voice. We can also note the close relationship between lawlessness and rebellion in these verses. The zealots were about to lead a massive rebellion against Rome, and Paul's readers knew that this had been their goal for some time. So the man of lawlessness would naturally come from their ranks. Josephus, who chronicled that rebellion and the war of the Jews, ran out of adjectives to describe how wicked it was and how profoundly the zealots violated the law for which they were supposed to be so zealous. Verse 4 says that the man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
The temple known to the Thessalonians and which was famous throughout the Roman Empire was burned and destroyed in 70 AD, only about 18 years after Paul wrote this letter. At the end of this study, we will look at what took place in the temple during its final years and what I believe fulfilled this prophecy. All right. Now, um, okay, I'm going to, in a minute, we'll skip down and look at some of that. All right. But I just want you to just realize that it's predicting that someone's going to go into the temple and, 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 and declare these things. I just want to remind you of what happens in 78. I don't know why. It, it seems like people just have a hard time. It, 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 it's really, here's what's fascinating to me. Whenever you get in a discussion about Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, any of these prophecies, it, it's people seem more committed to, an, to a narrative about something that is supposed to happen and seem to have a difficulty grasping what has already occurred. Let me just state it again. 70 AD, the Romans come in. They utterly obliterate, destroy the temple. Going onto the Temple Mount with their symbols of their their paganism, the eagles on their on their flags and everything else. They go up into the Temple Mount. They're Gentiles. They trample it underfoot. They burn it. They take everything out of it. The, by doing that, they are they are desecrating it. They are destroying it. They are they, they. It's an abomination. Not only that, let's make it very clear: by destroying the temple, they are declaring themselves to be greater than the gods of the Jews. The God of the Jews was connected to that temple. By destroying it, they're saying, we're greater than your God. We just destroyed your God's house. In a sense, we just destroyed your God. We are greater than God. We are God. But for some weird reason, it's like, no, okay, okay. I know that happened in 70 AD, but that, that can't be the answer. The answer has to be in the future. Why, why are we so quick to ignore what did happen to try to grab onto something that we think will happen. It, it, it's always fascinating how quick we're, we're willing to do that. Now, and let's, let's, this is very important. This is very important. Even if you, even if you say Second Thessalonians points to some future event, how do you know? Now, this is very important. What is your hermeneutical reason for connecting Second Thessalonians to Matthew twenty-four? Couldn't Matthew 24 be focused primarily on the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? And possibly could 2 Thessalonians be pointing to something future? They're completely separate. One's dealing with what happened in 70 AD, and 2 Thessalonians are looking to what happens in the future. Why do we have to put the two together unless you have a hermeneutical reason to do so? Does 2 Thessalonians quote from Matthew 24? Does Matthew 24 quote from 2 Thessalonians? Is there any direct connection? In other words, even if if you want to say 2 Thessalonians is the future, that would not necessarily fix Matthew 24. But you still have a problem trying to make 2 Thessalonians all of the future for us because it's specific prophecy given to a specific people to let them know. Well, why? Hey, guys, you don't even need to worry about this. 
you're all going to be dead. This has nothing to do with you. But it's written like it does, all right? Now, we'll, we'll, we'll go down and we'll, we'll read a little bit of what they have to say. This is a quote here. Um, I would like to address the popular belief that a third temple must soon be rebuilt in Jerusalem and that a future Antichrist figure will then be enthroned in that temple. Is there any way that the Thessalonian believers would have understood Paul's word this way? They knew from Jesus' own prophecies that the temple, the one they knew and most likely had visited, would be destroyed in their own generation, which we've looked at in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, We've looked at it in Luke. We've looked at it in Mark. Clearly, Jesus predicted himself with his own words, that temple's going to be destroyed. They knew that temple was going to be destroyed. So would they have said, okay, that temple's going to be destroyed, oh, and then another one's going to be built. Right? Like, you, you've got to understand the minds of the people who are receiving these letters. Again, sometimes we act like these letters were just, they're just, they just skipped everyone that they were originally given to. We have to at least try to understand what they would have been thinking. There are, they said there are no clues in the text pointing to a different temple than that one being involved in this prophecy. How strange would it have been for them to think that Herod's temple would later be replaced in order for a lawless individual to proclaim his divinity in a new temple? Even more strange would be the fact that they wouldn't need to be concerned about him because he was many centuries away from appearing. Yet Paul clearly wrote to them about the lawless one as if he would directly impact their their lives or the lives of those they cared about. All right? Okay. Um, I'm going to skip down here. Okay. Um, Let's see here. I'm going to go here. There's a lot here. Um, I'm going to see if I can get to the end here where we can look at some possible things of what happened. Okay. Okay. Don't think, all right, they don't, they don't go into great uh, detail here um, about everything. That, well, that's enough. Let's just stay. That's enough for right now. That's enough for right now. That's what I'll do. So let's go back and read this. All right. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, you, you guys, the, the, church, the people at the church of Thessalonica, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you soon be not shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by the spirit nor by the word nor by letter, as from us as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Now, remember, if the idea is that the day of Christ's coming is the end of the world or the rapture or any of those ideas, it would not make any sense that they could be deceived by that. Hey, I know all the believers... De- Wait, Paul wouldn't even be there. Okay, I, I, I know all the believers are gone, so that would insu- insinuate that none of them are believers. If they're all believers, they, they couldn't be deceived that the day of the Lord had happened because... They would all be gone. So they couldn't be thinking that it meant a rapture of all believers, or they would know that they would they couldn't be deceived by that because when it happened, they would all be gone. Unless you're saying that they they thought it happened and they had all missed it. So then where so how many believers did they know who disappeared? Did they not know one believer? And how was Paul writing them a letter? They don't believe Paul is a believer. Did Paul miss it as well? Like, 
Like there's a lot of like, what were their expectations? They couldn't have, they couldn't have believed it meant the end of the world because, well, they're still there. So they couldn't believe the world had ended. Did they think that this meant some judgment coming upon the apostate Jews? Is that what they possibly meant? And some people believe that that's what they were thinking. And they thought that that possibly had, had not happened or they were confused. So Paul says, hey, this is not going to happen until a falling away first. Some say a falling away. Some say a rebellion. If it's a rebellion, that happened in 60, I, got, I can't remember the date, 63 AD, Josephus records it, okay? And, and that, that had been building from the time Paul had written in 51. And so that rebellion came. The son, uh, the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. Now, let me make it very clear. Not everyone believes that that occurred in 70 AD. Some people believe that it occurred when the Jews appointed some, or when some people, when the zealots appointed some um, apostate, uh, an apostate priest, or, or, or put it this way, a, a, a fake high priest who was a puppet of the zealots. Josephus talks about this happening. Um, and then, uh, well, they, they did a lot of things. Uh, let's see. Uh, they, uh, they, they, the zealots uh, filled the temple with abominations, plundered houses, shed the blood of innocent people. Uh, and there was, there was a lot of things happening in the temple even before 70 AD that could have possibly have have fit maybe the abomination of desolation and a, and a lot of other things. There was a fake high priest appointed. There was a lot of things that happened leading up to it. We could go into more historical study. Let's just say, I, look, you can try to find all of the historical things of these individuals who were appointed and did things to the temple even before you get to 70 AD. There was already bad things happening in the temple before you even get to 70 AD. All right. And I can, well, maybe at some point we'll come back and go through all of these uh, individuals and everything that happened. Uh, uh, because you even have uh, basically the, uh, the uh, there's a like a war between the zealots and some of the other Jews. They tried to trap many of them in the temple complex. Uh, there was, I mean, there was bloodshed, there was killing, there was all kinds of things going on around the temple and in the t temple. I mean, it was just, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at all the things that happened, and it was just, it was just crazy. And, and Josephus refers to all of this. I think in the Jewish wars, he describes all of these things happening prior to 70 AD. Prior to 70 AD. In other words, people act like, you know, nothing was going on that could possibly fulfill any of these prophecies. But we have historical writings that would say, man, there was a lot of desecration and things going on in the temple. There was war, there was fake high priests, there was, there, was, uh, there was apostasy, there was idolatry, there was all kinds of things going on, all right? And we, we could go into greater detail, and maybe we'll have to do a little historical study on it. I just want you to realize that even if you don't think 70 AD fulfills this prophecy, you got things before 70 AD that fulfills this prophecy, in other words, you got things happening before 70 AD that could be the abomination that brings the desolation of 70 AD to pass. You could, you could almost understand it that way. That's a possibility. All right. So, um, there we go. All right. Now there's far more there. All I wanted to accomplish here is that everyone says, 
Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. And all I want to tell everyone who keeps telling me Second Thessalonians, understand there's like all kinds of different perspectives. There's so much historical information. We could spend months, we could spend we could spend 22 hours studying Second Thessalonians. We could spend a year studying Second Thessalonians, just looking at all historical details and how to possibly interpret this chapter. This was just to give you a little foretaste. I would challenge everyone to read Josephus. I think it's the Jewish Wars. Read everything he had to say leading up to seventy A.D. Just read everything. In fact, I mean, I mean, in fact, I think you can find it easily. We've we've already talked about the book. Um, I think I have it saved somewhere else, but I'm just doing a Google s- s- search just to see how easy it is to find it. You see. Okay. Uh, let's see here. The Jewish War. Uh, and you can find it. I think you can find it everywhere. Um, yeah, you should be able to find it online relatively easy. Um, and... Um, Okay. Yes, and yeah, the uh Okay, the book uh the book was written about 75 AD, so 5 years after the destruction of the temple. All right? And uh it goes through and describes so much uh it gives a lot of information about what was happening leading up to 70 AD. So there you have it. I mean, I mean, you could go through there and, and really that would, I would recommend that strongly and maybe we'll have to go back through it. I, again, all I wanted to do today is just say, if you say second Thessalonians, I can't believe we're already at 53 minutes. Um, if you say second Thessalonians, you got to check the Jewish war and you got to consider, is it possible that some of these things were fulfilled considering that he's writing specifically to a group of people that he's trying to help them out, all right? He's trying to help them out. He's trying to give them some kind of comfort. So what comfort was he giving them if everything Paul's writing to is all about something that hasn't even happened in 2022? I mean, you're t- it didn't even help their grandkids. It didn't help their grandkids, grandkids, grandkids. Grand- it didn't help. It, it has not helped anyone for generations, the things that supposedly that this is pointing to. But if it all happened around 70 AD, then okay, that this would be possibly some comfort to them, right? Because the apostate Jews were judged and just Judaism was destroyed for all practical purposes, Okay. So we, we can have a long discussion there. So let's, we'll have, we're running out of time, so we'll have to go through these quickly, all right? So there's one. Now, the next one, and I, and I, I can't, I, I, this one I'm not going to be able to spend, I have a whole bunch of notes, but the next one we have to look at, because everyone keeps mentioning this over and over, is this individual. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, let me just make it very clear. Antiochus Epiphanes has nothing to do with 70 AD because Epiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, uh, reigned over Syria from 175 BC until 164 BC. 175 BC to 164 BC. He's dead way a long time before you get to 70 AD. It seems that some people were confused at how how BC time works. If you're in 175 BC, 
and you want to get to 70 AD, you have to go down. You go 174, 173, 172, 171, 170, 169, 168, 167, 166, all the way you get down to zero, then 1 AD, 2 AD, then you work back up to 70 AD. Some people, I think, were confused in how that works, but that's the way it works. Uh, uh, This individual has nothing to do with 70 AD, okay? I want to make that very clear. Antiochus Epiphanes has nothing to do with 70 AD. And the reason we know this is because Jesus himself takes the prophecy of Daniel that a lot of people think was pointing to Antiochus Epiphanes, but Jesus takes that prophecy and applies it to, well, whatever future prophecy he's pointing to, which appears to be 70 AD. So when Antiochus Epiphanes goes in, and I'll just read a little bit about what he did, because he did some really messed up stuff, all right? Antiochus raided the temple in Jerusalem. He stole its treasures. He set up an altar to Zeus. He sacrificed swine on the altar. When the Jews expressed their outrage over the profaning of the temple, he responded by slaughtering a great number of the Jews, selling them into slavery. He issued even more draconian decrees, performing the rite of circumcision was punishable by death, and Jews everywhere were ordered to sacrifice to pagan gods and eat pig flesh. That has nothing to do with 70 AD. None. That doesn't fulfill anything in 70 AD. 70 AD is, we're dealing with the, the desecration of the temple. Well, before even 70 AD by the zealots and appointing a a fake high priest and all the things that they do, you can read about in the Jewish wars. But what happened in 70 AD is a desecration of the temple by the Romans who burn it completely down, take everything out. They defile it. They destroy it. They burn it to the ground. And by doing that, you're declaring yourself to be greater than the God whose temple you just destroyed. I, I don't, that, so I don't know where, why, uh, how I led to any confusion there, but this individual has nothing to do with 70 AD. So once again, let's get his name. So everyone knows the name. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, all right? That's the person you need to know. That's, and you have to understand he has nothing to do with 70 AD. All right, then, lastly, right, Matthew 24. Now, I wish we could have spent more time in 2 Thessalonians. I really, I really do, but, but uh, I, have, I had to stop somewhere because if we didn't, well, <laughs> it, would, it could turn into six months of study, but we'll, we'll work on 2 Thessalonians. And I'm not saying that all, and make it very clear, I want to make it very clear because I'm, I know I'm going to get more confusion. I'm not saying everything they said about 2 Thessalonians works. I'm not saying that everything that we just read is correct. What I'm trying to show you is there's so much, there's a lot of disagreement on 2 Thessalonians, but you have to at least consider that 2 Thessalonians itself was pointing to 70 AD because it's trying to provide comfort to the people that Paul was writing to. So that was going to be somewhat helpful considering they were being persecuted, it appears, by the Jews. So this was going to be God bringing judgment on the apostate Jews. So I, I just, we have to at least consider that, all right? So there we, so just remember, Antiochus Epiphanes, 163 BC, 164 BC, 165 BC, 
Okay, that's when he lives. That's when he desecrates the temple. That has nothing to do with 70 AD. In 70 AD, Rome's, Rome, the Romans come in and they burn it to the ground. They destroy it. There's nothing left. And it's been that way since 70 AD. And here we are in 2022. Right? That, that's, we just have to make sure we have that down. Now, the next. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, we talked about this yesterday. This verse poses problems. It poses problems first for the, hist- for the preterist or those who see Matthew 24 as pointing to everything related to 70 AD. Those who see, no, Matthew 24 is related to 70 AD. They would read it this way. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation would refer to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Well, the problem here is immediately after that, the sun is darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, the way those who look at this from a historical perspective get around this is they like, well, immediately after that tribulation, this language simply describes the destruction of a nation, the destruction of a country or a city in very symbolic and apocalyptic way. We see this exact thing thing happening in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, and other Old Testament books, where it's talking about the destruction of Babylon, or this city, or this city, and it's using the exact same language about the moon, the sun, the stars, and clearly it didn't happen then, so we that's how we understand this language. I'm not saying that's perfect, but that's the way they work around it. Those who hold to a futuristic perspective, they tend to say that when it refers to the tribulation, it's referring to the seven-year tribulation, right? Or the last three and a half years, sometimes referred to as the great tribulation. Well, then immediately after the tribulation, the sun is dark and the moon, well, wait a minute, that can't happen after the tribulation because those who hold to a seven-year tribulation will quote verses in Revelation that has those things happening not after the tribulation, but during the tribulation. So how do you get that after the tribulation? Well, we, li- we reviewed a sermon from John MacArthur who didn't even bother to seem to think it was interesting to even try to, ex- to fix that. Someone did offer an interesting perspective. Is it possible that after the tribulation there is not referring to the totality of the, in other words, the total seven-year tribulation, that after the tribulation is only referring to the first three years, first three and a half years. All right, let's argue that that's possible. What you would need to do is you would have to go to Revelation. First, you would have to be able to, uh, uh, you would have to create a timeline, all right? So in the book of Revelation, which chapter marks the beginning of the three and a half years, all right? So you'd have to go to the book of Revelation and go, okay, this is, let's say chapter four, Revelation four, that's the beginning of the tribulation, all right? Which chapter do you switch over to the second half of the tribulation? And then you would have to find the verses that talk about the sun, the moon, and all of that, and make sure that those passages do not appear in the first half of the tribulation, but they appear in the second half of the tribulation. So that's the first thing you would have to do if we just go along with this idea. 
But what some people want to say is that, so what happened is the tribulation referred to here is the first half of the tribulation. Immediately after the first half of the tribulation, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of those things happen. That happens in the second half of the tribulation. And then that concludes with Jesus coming back and destroying everyone in Revelation 19. You would have to try to establish that chronology. Now, here's what I would challenge you to do. By all means, try to do it. And then I want you to check your chronology with every other people who who hold to even your view of eschatology and see how many agree with you. There's some argument about even how, how do we put even the chapters in Revelation in chronological order. Can they even be put in chronological order? Are they, are they out of chronological order? First, you've got to establish, oh, they're in perfect chronological order. This chapter begins the tribulation. This is the end of the first half. This begins the second half. Now, Matthew 24, say that, now, that, now this, this immediately argues that you don't even look to 70 AD. So this immediately just ignores 70 AD. And so immediately after the tribulation of those days, not the total. And again, it doesn't say immediately after part of the tribulation. It says after the tribulation, but now you have to make it read immediately after the first part of the tribulation. This is how it happens. So now you're not, now we have to ignore the actual words that are used and we have to try to make it, no, 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 put it this way. No matter what view you hold to, you have to do a little bit of of mental gymnastics to try to make it work. The verse just poses a million problems for whatever view you want to add it to. To me, I don't know where you put, I don't know how you work it. I don't know how you work it. I don't know if, if saying that, that this, this is just referring to the first half of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation, it, just because it says after the tribulation. And you're saying, no, after, you're, you're just imposing on it that there's two parts of the tribulation, and this is only referring to the first part. Th- that there's a lot of imposing that onto the text. And remember, the actual phrase there is uh, after, in fact, the way it's translated in other translations. Other translations don't even use the word tri- tribulation. They don't even use the word tribulation because we, we see the word tribulation, we immediately associate it with the seven-year tribulation. Um, other translations have it this way, immediately after the distress of those days. Well, if it's, if it's not even translated tribulation, then how can you immediately connect it with seven-year tribulation when it's just saying immediately after the distress of those days? What days? I, 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 I appreciate the attempt because I'm willing to consider anything. Look, I'm willing to consider any possible answer anyone has. What bothers me is how many commentaries just don't ignore this and don't even try to answer it. They're like, oh, no, uh, as we saw in MacArthur. See, after the tribulation of those days, the sun, moon, and dark. Hey, go to Revelation chapter 6. See, that's where it is. Well, wait, hey, MacArthur, is Revelation 6 after the tribulation? Because I would think the tribulation would end with Revelation 19 with Jesus coming out of the clouds to destroy everyone. So you already have the sun, moon, and stars gone before Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. So how many, from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19, how many weeks, months, years does that represent that the world went on with no sun, moon, or star? Like, how does that operate? Because MacArthur also pointed out that if the sun, moon was darkened, that it, 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 things would not last very long. Okay, well then, how do you reconcile all of that? There you have it. 
So those are the three things that we I wanted to add clarity. So in summary, 2 Thessalonians 2. Yes, it talks about things that a lot of people immediately assign to the future. However, there's a lot of language there with 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. It seems Paul's trying to provide comfort to the people who were alive at that time. And if that comfort they were seeking was the judgment on the apostate Jews, well, then they never, then, and, and you're saying that 2 Thessalonians has nothing to do with them, has everything to do with the future, then Paul did not provide any comfort to them because they've yet to experience anything. None of that, none of what supposedly this is talking about has happened even in 2022. But if it was about the apostate Jews, well, judgment came upon the apostate Jews about 14 years after Paul wrote this with the destruction of basically the Jewish era in 70 AD. So 2 Thessalonians doesn't necessarily fix everything, and you've also got to show me the hermeneutical key where you're immediately just taking 2 Thessalonians and reading reading it back into Matthew 24, or you're reading Matthew 24 into 2 Thessalonians. There's got to be some, like, there's got to be a connection there. We, we sometimes can kill ourselves with just because we just put verses together with no sometimes rhyme or reason in how we're putting them together, All right? Then... Make sure we understand that what happened in 163-164 BC with the profaning of the temple has nothing to do with 70 AD. 70 AD, a pig was not offered up on the altar. They they desecrated it by destroying it, bringing it completely to the ground. If everyone would have to acknowledge that's a desecration of a holy place, right? They desecrated it. There were Gentiles coming onto the Temple Mount with their symbols of paganism. They burned everything and they took everything away. They desecrated it. They corrupted it. It was an abomination. But even before you get to that, the Jews were, the zealots and others were, were already desecrating and corrupting the temple with the things that they were doing even before you get to 70 AD. So there's a multiple ways of having these things fulfilled prior to 70 AD, all right? So, but 2 Thessalonians doesn't fix everything, um, and, and I just want to make sure we make that clear. The 164 BC has nothing to do with 70 AD, and to say, to say Matthew 24, 29, that after the tribulation doesn't mean after the tribulation, it means after part of the tribulation, then you have to go establish a timeline in the book of Revelation, going, here's where the tribulation starts, here's the halfway point, and here's the end. Most people put the halfway po- point as the abomination of desolation. Well, if the abomination of desolation takes place in the halfway part, then where does that show up in the book of Revelation? Because we got to figure out when it talks about the sun, moon, and stars. Where does that fit in? Like, how are you building your chronology? If you're going to make a chronological argument, you've got to establish the chronology and and, and go from there. All right, now that's an hour and 10 minutes and trying to answer those. There are plenty of others that I didn't even get to. There are plenty of others. I, I do hope, I know I definitely had a couple of messages of people completely confused about BC time and AD. Remember, B.C., so let's just, just so that we, I'll just use it this way. If you're in 10 B.C. and you're going to go to 5 A.D., you don't, obviously you don't count up, you count down. So you're 10 B.C., you go 9 B.C., A.B.C., 
uh, 8 BC, 7 BC, 6 BC, 5 BC, 4 BC, 3 BC, 2 BC, 1 BC, and then theoretically, there's this, we can get to an argument, no year, zero, but 0, 1 AD, 0, uh, or, or 1 AD, 2 AD, 3 AD, 4 AD, then you start going back up. So BC time goes down, and then the uh, AD time then goes up, if that makes any sense, right? There was some there was some some mass confusion on that and i don't know i don't know what i i don't know what i did to create that and i also don't know what i did to make people think that this person let me go through it one more time that this person antiochus epiphanes the antiochus epiphanes i don't know what i did to convince anyone that antiochus epiphanes had anything to do with 70 ad he had nothing to do with it Okay, he's law. He's dead long before his desecration of the temple has nothing to do with Jesus' prediction in Matthew twenty-four because Jesus is predicting something coming, not something that had already happened. All right, there we go. I hope that's helpful. I'm going to check messages here um, because I always end up with multiple messages of people disagreeing or agreeing. Okay, wait, I've got a message here. All right. Okay, hang on. All right. I don't think so. I'm checking email. No, I don't believe I have anything here. And I don't believe I have any comments on YouTube. All right. So I don't have any comments right now. But I I guarantee you before this evening is over, there'll probably be plenty but I wanted to try to just address all of it. Again, this is not directed at any one person because there's countless people who've offered similar issues, right? Similar issues. So um, I hope, I hope that um, this will be beneficial, ben- beneficial. And I'm not, I'm not asking you to agree with everything that we just, we read about Second Thessalonians. I'm not. What I'm, a- what I'm asking you to do is go, wait a minute, man. I have to at least consider that Second Thessalonians is pointing to things that happened leading up to 70 AD and 70 AD. I have to at least consider the possibility. I'm not, say, I'm not saying I even agree with that. But my approach is, this is what I tend to do, and I'll just make sure because I know I'm still going to get confusion. My approach is this. Matthew 24, the wording, the context is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Just a normal reading of it would lead you to that. Jesus walks out of the temple. They're like, look at those buildings. They're going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? And he starts giving signs, clearly pointing to that. I'm not saying that there's nothing in Matthew 24 that may jump to some future thing. But first and foremost, we have to look at 70 AD. All I'm going to say, when I get to 2 Thessalonians, it may be it may be all about the future. It may be, but I have to deal with the textual issues that that presents, right? One, that would be of no comfort and no help to the people that Paul was writing to. That's a problem. Number two, I don't think that they were looking for what a lot of people think that they were confused about. I think that they were possibly looking for judgment on apostate Jews. I think there's some truth there. Not only that, many of the things that they're pointing to there's a possibility that they were fulfilled in 70 AD as well. I'm not saying it's per- perfect, but even if you say 2 Thessalonians is future completely, that doesn't destroy Matthew 24 being about 70 AD. Matthew 24 could be about 70 AD. 2 Thessalonians could be about the future. 
unless you're saying that they're inseparably linked and you can't do that. Matthew 24, the reason 70 AD is such a strong argument for Matthew 24 is because the language that is used. But the uh, the Jewish wars by Josephus may be a serious thing that people should read so that they have um, a better understanding of everything that took place leading up to 70 AD. And this would be significant because then you could go, wait, man, that sounds a lot like what Josephus talked about. Wow, that sounds like a lot you know what? I think this was fulfilled right there. You would at least have the knowledge to be able to make that determination. Because again, these prophecies are written to people who lived at that time. You, we, we, we so, it's so weird how we forget the people it was written to. We just like, hey guys, none of you matter because none of this is for you. It's all for, I guess we always want to think it's for us. It may not even be for us, I mean, for 2,000 years, people have been thinking, it's us, it's us, it's us, it's us. And well, it's still not been any of those generations, other than maybe the generation these prophecies were first delivered to, where, oh, guess what they witnessed? They witnessed all of the craziness that happened with the zealots and the, the things they were doing in the temple, and they saw the complete destruction of the temple and the end of the Jewish era. They witnessed all of that. They actually saw all of that happen. You say, are you saying Jesus is not coming back? I didn't say that. I never said that, right? He, Acts 1, he went up into the clouds and he's going to come back in like manner. I do believe there's going to be a return of Christ. I do believe he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. That's a fact. But that doesn't mean that there are, aren't prophecies here that people immediately want to apply to the future that may not have been fulfilled in 70 AD because in some cases, the text almost demands it. All right. We'll work more on Second Thessalonians. I hope that was helpful. All right, thanks. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.